be with you again here at, at West at Westville. We have been traveling around a lot this past couple of these past couple of years, and uh, we got back from uh, the Philippines last February, the end of last February, and I believe we were here at Westville around this time last year. And so it is good. We've been all over the country, and uh, and currently, as you know, we came back from the Philippines because of health concerns for Joyce and trying to get things worked out for her. And uh, we continue to try and follow that path. We do have a doctor's appointment tomorrow for her, and we are hoping to get a referral to go to the, uh, the Hartford Health Center for their, they have a, a headache center there to try and uh, see if they can work through some situations and see if we can get to the bottom of the problems that she's been having. As you know, we have seen a multitude of doctors over the course of the last few years, and we've not, never really found any kind of uh, satisfying result. And so we are looking forward to what the Lord may do here and uh, just pray, continue to pray for Joyce and for her health. And then she had to, without, you know, she didn't have enough pain, so she decided she'd fall down the stairs. And so she fell down the basement steps uh, a couple of weeks ago, and now she not only is suffering headaches every day, she's suffering back pain every day. So just, just keep her in your prayers while she heals up her, her back. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. While you're turning there, I'll give you an update on our current situation. We are we're currently living with our daughter Rachel and her husband Ian and our grandson Lucian up in the Plainville area, while our apartment, which is downstairs in their home, they have a, a fairly good-sized home, and in the basement it has a full-size apartment uh, that they bought the house with us in mind so that when we ever had to come home from the field, we'd have a place to live. And, but they had a lot of water damage that was done down there with, uh, over the winters. And so we've had to do a lot of remodeling down there. So we've been tearing out walls, tearing out cabinets, tearing out everything. And so it's going to be another few months probably before we are able to be settled in there. So we'd appreciate your prayers for, for that as well. Acts chapter 15. And we're going to, you know, I've, I've been given these challenges over the last couple of weeks. Last week I had to follow um, Mike Atwood when he spoke up in, in Brantford. This week, I have to f follow Eric Broadbent. You know, so these are challenges <laughs> that we are given uh, from the Lord from time to time. And I love both of those brothers, and I really appreciate their ministries over the, over the course of the years. Let's see, we're going to begin at verse 19, which Eric, I believe, left off at verse 18. It says this, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. But they rewrite to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, 
and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you shall do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. So, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, again, we recognize that this is your holy word that you have given to us. And here there are lessons that you want us to learn. There are things that you want to teach us. And so we pray that we would be sensitive to thy spirit this morning, that we might learn the things that you have uh, desired to teach us this morning. And so we commit ourselves to thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you approach narrative in the, in the Word of God, you do, you do not change your method of interpretation. You do not change your methodology when you approach narrative. And, 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 and the Scriptures as a whole, both in the Old and New Testament, contain a great deal of narrative. If you go through the Old Testament stories, even in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, you see a lot of narrative, stories being told, story upon story upon story, leading us through the history of the, of the beginning of God's dealings with, with Abraham and the dealings with, with uh, the people of Israel. And into, of course, into the other history books as well. And when you come into the New Testament, you find the book, the books of the Gospels, which are often just full of narrative, although there is teaching there as well. But you get into the book of Acts, and again, you get into this section where there's a great deal of narrative. So you still approach it with a literal, historical, grammatical approach to the Word of God. 
seeking to see what literally is being said, literally is being taught, understanding the words, understanding the times and the cultures in which these words were given, and then seeking to find the things there that the Lord would teach to your heart as you make application now to the things that you have drawn from the text. Now here, in this section that we read this morning, we actually see two storylines, if you will, in the narrative. There are two storylines. Some would argue, perhaps, or maybe you would argue that there are three, but I see two storylines here. One is the continuation of the story dealing with the Jerusalem Council, or more accurately, perhaps, the, the results of the Jerusalem Council and what was, the, uh, what was determined by the apostles that they would do in order to deal with the situation that had come up in Antioch and in the Gentile churches. And then moving from that narrative, naturally flowing right into the very next, which is the preparations and the beginning of the second missionary journey. Now we recognize that we are at a watershed moment, if you will, in the history of the church. We are at a, at a moment in the church that is extremely important. It is, as I called it, a watershed moment in the church. Now, for us, as we look at these things, and as you've studied them last week, and as we'll briefly look at them again this morning, we recognize that what is happening here would affect the church going forward. It would have a tremendous effect on the church going forward, in particular on the Gentile church. Now, we don't see these things as being all that important in the church today. When you talk about circumcision in the church today, it's seen as a, not as a very important issue among us. Well, I don't think there's been any separation among us because someone hasn't been circumcised who is in the fellowship, right? I mean, we don't, circumcision is not a big issue within the assemblies of Gentiles in today's church. But believe you me, back in the first century, when it was beginning, it was a crucial issue. It was an issue that caused a great deal of dissension within the church and continued to haunt Paul for all of the days of his ministry. This very issue of being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses, which two things were connected. Now, circumcision is one of those interesting things because it's always been, you know, you have to be very careful in the way you choose words and what you say. <clears throat> but it is one of those interesting things. As you are aware, historically, circumcision didn't begin with, with Genesis 17 and when God gave circumcision to Abraham. It hadn't begun there. Many other nations were following this practice before the time of Abraham. You find a lot of the Western Semite people, the Amorites, the Moabites, were practicing this before the time God gave it to Abraham. So it wasn't anything that was unique in that sense that he gave it to Abraham. And you'll remember from that narrative in, in Genesis 17, it is the very first time that God is described as El Shaddai. God Almighty, and then he brings into Abraham, or gives to Abraham that covenant that 
everlasting covenant that he gives to Abraham, that covenant that has never been broken, that covenant that he will yet fulfill in all of its completion, but yet he gives it to him, and then he gives him circumcision as a sign of the covenant which he had given to him. And we recognize a covenant simply means to cut. It means to cut. And so when they, and when they made covenants, generally they would take a, a piece, of, uh, they would take an animal, Perhaps cut it in two, walk between the pieces, and as we saw God do with Abraham, in order to confirm the covenant, blood was shed to confirm the covenant. And it was the idea of, if I should break this covenant, then I am responsible by blood for breaking the covenant. And so anyway, all of that put aside, well, don't put it aside completely, put it on the back burner. Remember that when we come into the first century now, and this becomes such a crucial issue, it is one of the reasons it becomes a crucial issue in the church is because the Greeks and the Romans abhorred circumcision. They abhorred it. It was never allowed. In fact, there were times when Romans made laws forbidding it. And so now you're, you're beginning to talk about Gentile churches that grow up in, in a Greek and a Roman kind of environment where this was abhorred among some of the Gentiles, if they were of the Greek background, if they were from a Roman background. <clears throat> and now you have men who are coming into the church and saying, these who had come to know Christ, who had believed to the saving of their souls, and then some men were coming in saying, unless you are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. You see, it's more complicated than just a Jew coming in and saying, you must keep this, do this, and keep this. We're dealing with a whole different set of circumstances as we go into the Gentile church. Okay. That being said, it is a crucial issue that had to be dealt with. A crucial issue in the early church. Was God beginning a new thing or was it just to be an extension of the old thing? Was God beginning a new dispensation or was he simply continuing on the old dispensation, whereby you must keep the law of Moses? Paul had been teaching that you did not need to keep the law of Moses any longer as Gentiles. Now, fast forward into the early church. We're in the early church now. Why would that be a fast forward? That's what we're talking about. So we'll just kind of stay where we are. In the early church, and now you have... Gentiles being saved, and you have Judaizers or, or Jewish brethren. These are true brethren. I believe that they're brethren. I believe they are those who have who've come to know Christ from among the Pharisees and among some of the others. And Pharisees, of course, are very, very, were very, very strict in the things of the law. And now they come in and begin to teach. And they say, No, you must, you must become a Jew in order to be saved. You must keep the law. You must become a proselyte in order to be saved. Isn't the law given by God? Did God not give the law? Did God not give all of these things to the Jewish people? And you will come out of the root. And so you should also follow 
these things. And you can see how it would be a great difficulty. And you remember that when the law was given to Moses, and now this circumcision which preceded the law became a part of the law, and regulations were set down and were codified, you remember that among that it was also to be an issue not only of the flesh, but of the heart. And you'll find in the Old Testament law being talked about circumcising your hearts, which Paul would pick up on when he talks about it in in different portions in the New Testament, the idea of the circumcising of your hearts, the, the cutting away, the separating, that your heart would be separated unto God. It was to be a heart issue. It was never intended to simply be a fleshly thing. When God does things, there always is a, is a spiritual significance to why he does things. They were to circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and be stiff-necked no longer, he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 10. They were called to, to demonstrate the spiritual qualities of commitment and obedience to the things of God and to the things of His will. And you remember Paul picks up in, in Romans chapter 2 when he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the circumcision is out of the heart and of the spirit and not of a letter whose praise is not from men but from God. And so it was to be of the heart. Circumcision, being a part of God's chosen people, had the responsibility before God. And circumcision involved this consecrating of oneself unto God. As the law would teach him to be holy, for I am holy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. And these things were brought about as part and parcel of what the law was about. Now at the beginning of the church, you'll remember that the Jewish church in in Jerusalem in particular when it began, they were carrying on their regular practices of Judaism, weren't they? Many of them were continuing to go to the synagogue on the Saturday and then meet with the saints on the, on the Sunday to remember the Lord on the first day of the week. And they would break bread and remember the things of the Lord, yet they would continue on going to the services of the synagogue and they would continue on with their Jewish practices. They would continue keeping the feasts. They would continue doing many of those things as the church was evolving. I've always taught, and I, I would still teach, that in, in the dispensations that you find as you, as, as you go through studying the dispensations, you'll find that the dispensations frequently will overlap. And here we have an overlapping of the dispensation coming out of the dispensation of law into the dispensation of grace, and you have both things being taking, taking place at one time at the beginning of the church where you had those who were keeping the law, those who were following the customs, and yet were now true born-again believers who had come to know the Lord. But the issue of the Gentile church, the issue of Gentile believers, comes very early, doesn't it? The issue becomes critical very early. Peter goes down to see Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is in between those two things, isn't he? Because he's like a proselyte. He's like a God-fearer. Not a Jew by birth, but a God-fearer. He's a Gentile. 
And, of course, Peter goes down. Peter sees that wonderful vision of the sheet coming down from heaven and the Lord saying, kill, eat. What I've, what I've declared to be clean, don't you say, is n- unclean. And he gets that, that wonderful vision, and he goes to share the gospel with Cornelius, and Cornelius comes to know the Lord, and he's a, and, and becomes a believer in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter goes in to eat with Gentiles, which would have been a very serious issue among the Jewish believers and among the Jews at that time. But the question became, as I mentioned earlier, was we, were we going to continue on with a divided church or a united church? Was there going to be a divided church? Was there going to be a Jewish church and a Christian church? Was there going to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church, I should say? Were there going to be two different kinds of churches? Or was there going to be one? Was there going to be one universal body with all the local expressions? It was, a, it was an issue that had to be dealt with. And you know, today, in many cases, we've gone the opposite direction. Some have gone the opposite way. Instead of being a united uh, a group of born-again believers from, from both from Judaism and from, Christi- or from the Gentile nations coming in together and meeting together, there has been an ongoing separation where Jewish brothers and sisters in the Lord have separated themselves more from the Gentile and have their own little Jewish messianic groups where they meet together, and they've made this separation again, where they carry on some of their own festivals, carry on some of their own things. And for me, if you want to do that, that's fine. I have no problem with you doing all of that. There's a certain liberty that we have in Christ, but I think there is something special in an assembly of God's people where there's a blending of Jewish and, and Gentile believers. Do you think you could learn something from the heritage of a Jewish man. Have you, when Steve Herzik comes here and shares with you things from, from his Jewish heritage, is that, is that helpful? Is that helpful in your understanding of Old Testament? Is it helpful? Oh, yeah, it is. Imagine if we didn't separate ourselves and continue to, to maintain assemblies that were a blend of things. How rich that would be. But we seem to have gone backwards, and I don't want to go into that issue. And I shouldn't have gone into it anyway, but I did. And that's just the way it is. Now, so at the beginning of the church and the beginning of the local churches, we now accept what we would call the autonomy of the local church. And we would encourage indigenous churches which are also autonomous. When we were in the Philippines doing ministry, and you're doing ministry in a very different culture, in a very different language group, and you're, doing, you're, you're seeking to establish local churches that are indigenous, that, that is not run and controlled by the, the Western man who comes in or the Western couple that comes in, but churches that are growing indigenously where their leadership is, is nationals, where they're growing in grace by national leaders, national elders that are able to take over the work. And yet we, we also recognize that each one of those local assemblies is, is, is autonomous in and of itself, that it's not responsible to any other hierarchy, but that each local assembly, such as Westville, 
for example, Westville is not responsible to Cheshire for how you, how you conduct your services and meetings here. You're not responsible to Westwood. You're not responsible to any other assembly. You're responsible to the elders and before the Lord in this local assembly. Is getting together a wonderful, wonderful thing. But we maintain the autonomy of each local assembly. Now, why do I say that? I say that because here we have a situation in the early church. And depending on which side of the ecclesiastical fence you sit, you can use this time when they came down to see the, then when they went up to Jerusalem to see the apostles that were before them to get a decision that was going to affect the, the Gentile churches. Did the church in Antioch give up its autonomy to do that? Were they saying, we're going to go up now to the, to the bishops that reside in Jerusalem so we can get a decision from the bishops and then once we get a decision from them, then we'll bring it back to the local church and whatever they say goes and we'll have to apply it to the local church. Did the church at Antioch sacrifice its autonomy under the Lord in order to get this decision? I don't believe so. We remember that Paul talks about by revelation he received <laughs> the gospel that he was preaching. And I pre believe Paul was absolutely convinced, although he says, whether I had run in, or in vain or taught in vain, I don't believe he ever thought that the, the gospel he teached, uh, he teached, that was a wonderful sentence, wasn't it? The gospel that he taught was anything but the pure gospel. That Gentiles could be saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they go up because there have been Judaizers. Or not, I, you really don't call them Judaizers at this point in time. Because these men from Jerusalem came down to the church at Antioch and began to teach these things, decisions had to be made. How will we make these decisions? What is the right thing? Let's go up to Jerusalem and see the facts of this. Let's go up into Jerusalem and see if these men were really sent from Jerusalem church to tell us these things. Were, were these men sent by the, by the apostles to come down and teach us these things? Or what is the situation? And so they travel up and they get the council and the council comes together and says, you know, th these men weren't sent from us. We didn't, we didn't send them down. But they had a debate, didn't they? They had a debate. And during the course of that debate, Peter got up and gave his, his story concerning Cornelius. And then you get James that stands up. And Paul, of course, and Barnabas are telling about how the Lord had blessed among the, the churches where they had been gone and how people were being saved and how the Holy Spirit was coming upon them just as it had upon those in Jerusalem. And they were excited about the things they were sharing. And then James finally stands up and he gives his decision on the matter he gives his opinion on the whole matter and that's where we find ourselves today we saw last week or you saw last week the reading of Amos the portions in the Old Testament which were verifying their statements and then we get to verse 19 now we get to verse 19 he says therefore I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God but whether we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, 
from blood, for Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every week. Traditions are stubborn things. They really are. And I don't care where you are. Traditions are stubborn among the brethren as well. Stubborn things. Laws are even more stubborn, aren't they? Especially when those laws have come from God. Very difficult situation, isn't it? How would you feel if today someone came into the meeting, they came in just before the Lord's Supper was about to begin and said, you no longer need to keep the Lord's Supper. It's been done away with. It's been done away with. It's been superseded by other things. You no longer have to keep the, the remembrance of the Lord. Well, how would you feel? Would you say, oh, well, well pardon me, I didn't know that. Let's, let's skip that. We'll just go straight into the next meeting. No, you would not. You would say, uh, we beg to differ. It's until he comes that we're going to do this, and I don't believe he has come yet, and we're going to continue to remember the Lord on the first day of the week until he comes. That was the pattern of the New Testament church, and that's the pattern that we're following. It was a command that was given to us by our Lord, and we're going to continue to do it. So someone comes in and says, this is the law. You are to keep the law. And Paul says to the, gen- to the Jewish preachers, oh no, the law's done away with. What are you talking about? You, can you see? You can see the problem, can't you? It is a severe problem, but a very important problem to be dealt with. And a new era is beginning. The law of Moses that was given by direct revelation from God, having been applied and instructed generation after generation as a part of that covenant relationship of which circumcision was the sign. And we can understand the reasons why these Pharisees believed and wanted to impose this upon the fellow believers. You can, I can understand why they would want to do it. They thought it was right. It was right. The law was right. It was good. It was from God. And he warned them. God had warned them over and over and over to keep it and to find their delight in it and to say, forget it. Put it aside. Not necessary anymore. Critical issue. Critical issue. And I think you can understand how hard this would have been. But a new thing was beginning. Peter spoke of his experiences with it. Paul spoke of his experiences with it. Barnabas of his. And how the Lord was giving his spirit to the Gentiles just as he had done to the Jews. And so it was concluded in the early day of the church that the law of Moses would not be applied to the Gentile church. Why should we put the yoke upon them that we ourselves could not carry? That is an amazing change. Salvation would not ever be by works or by law keeping. Salvation would be by grace through faith alone. 
whether you were a Jew or whether you were a Gentile, salvation would be based on the same foundation. And it wasn't law-keeping. It was on the finished work of Christ on Calvary. But then when you read through the New Testament and you read through the, especially through the epistles, you'll find out that the principles of the law are still there. The principles of the law didn't go away, did they? Murder is still murder, isn't it? Adultery is still adultery. Lying is still lying. Coveting is still coveting. And those are all part of that standard of God. But they're there under grace now. Right? And it even puts us at a higher standard, doesn't it? Where the Lord talks about if you even have murder, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're committing murder. That's a high, high standard, boy, isn't it? But he's also given us his spirit by which to live and by which to honor our Lord. Okay, we have three minutes to finish, and we've got a little bit of ways to go. But the law was holy. The law is right. The law is still just. That has never changed. Now when you get to this whole idea of what things then how did they impose on them? We just were told that they were no longer under the law of Moses. And he said, but, but these things. Let's do these things. Now let me, let me just ask you simply. Is sexual immorality simply a mosaic code? No. No. And you remember that you remember that Paul deals with the whole issue of sacrificing animals to idols and that the idol is no thing and it's a conscience thing. And the point I'm trying to get at, and I, and I need to go right to the point because my time is about gone and we'll probably have to pick up some other things next time. But the point of this is that when you, when you deal with these issues of that now are coming forward. Are these issues that deal with law or are these things that preceded the law? Talk about um, blood, the eating of blood. Was that simply a mosaic thing or did it precede the mosaic law? It simply, it certainly preceded the Mosaic Law. When God gave instructions to Noah, you were not to eat, you can eat the animals, but don't eat the blood because it, the life is in the blood and don't eat the blood. We have a, this causes a lot of problems in the Philippines where I served for many, many years. And why is that? Because they have a, they have a, have a food that they like to, like to eat. Uh, Dinaguan, it's a, it is a stew that's made out of pork blood. And it's, a, it's something they love to eat. I've never tried it, but it looks awful, but they love it. And it, it is a delicacy among them, and they have it, and they eat it all the time. So this issue rises up to the surface over and over in the churches. What about the restrictions given in Acts chapter 15? Do they still apply to the Gentile church? Aren't we out from under the law? Does the law not carry us? 
Oh, but these things preceded the law. And when you talk about strangling something and eating it, the whole idea is the blood is still in it. The two things go together. And there's another delicacy in the Philippines that causes the problem. It's, it's called balut. Balut is a, is a duck egg in which the, the embryo or however you want to call it, has already formed and growing inside. Sometimes it has feathers, sometimes it has, and they, they'll cook it, crack it open, and eat it. And the problem is it has never had many blood drained. So now the question comes up there. Okay, you've got these two issues. Do they still apply? Do they still apply? Do these things precede the law? And so, see, it becomes an issue not of law-keeping, but of principles that God has laid down. The apostles aren't saying this isn't simply a matter of table manners, I don't think. I mean, it is that in some ways. And what I mean by table manners is, well, do these things because you're with Jewish people a lot. And this, if you don't do that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be you know, really offensive to them. So just be kind and don't flaunt your liberty in front of them and just do these simple things and, and everything will be okay. And that's true. That is a very important point, very important point. But beyond that, it goes, it goes beyond simple table manners among the Jewish people. It is an issue that goes back to principles that God had established before that for men to follow and to adhere to. Don't do these things. Don't keep these things. And now, to clarify something, and we'll, we'll have to close, I suppose, to clarify something is when you eat a nice rare steak and there's blood in it, you don't have to fear that you're breaking somehow a commandment that was given because the blood has been drained and there's always re residual blood in anything that you eat if it's been a, alive before. That's not the issue here. That's not the issue here. You see a little bit of blood, oh, we're going to cook that right out. Well, you're cooking it out. You're still eating it. What's the deal? That's not the issue. The issue is the life was in the blood. You drain the blood before you eat it. And, I'm, and again, I'm not a legalistic kind of guy. All of you who know me know I'm not a legalistic kind of guy. This isn't about legalism. And the point I'm trying to make is Paul didn't go back now and say, well, you know, we are no longer under the law except for these things. As soon as you let the exceptions in, you've opened a whole can of worms. But, that being said, did not the Sabbath proceed the giving of the law? Was the Sabbath that which preceded the law? It did, didn't it? It goes all the way back to creation. Remember the Sabbath day to keep, keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day. And that goes all the way back to pre-law times. And so some will make the same argument that I've just made, although I'm just supposing, I'm not making an argument really, that these things preceded the law, therefore we should keep the Sabbath day. We should meet on Saturdays and keep the Sabbath day because that was pre-Mosaic law times and it wasn't done away in the times of the law. And it's very interesting to note that as you go through the Gospels, every single one of the, every single one of the ten points of the Decalogue are repeated under grace with the exception of remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Under, and I'm talking about it within the epistles. Now, we have another principle that has been laid down for us in, in the book of Acts. 
And that principle that was laid down in the book of Acts, although it is not a commandment, you will not find it as a commandment anywhere, but it is laid down in the book of Acts that the early church met on when? The first day of the week. They met on the first day of the week to break bread. And that is a consistent pattern. They met, first they met every day. Then they began settling into the pattern of on the first day of the week when they gathered together. And that became the pattern. But, you know, under regulations and rules that Paul talks about, you know, some see one day as more important than the other. Some keep this Sabbath. Some do this. You know, personal opinion here, okay? And I promise I'll close because I know you're all getting nervous and we didn't get to the next part. We'll pick that up next time. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, what was I just saying? I got into that whole confusion thing. What was I just saying? Oh, my personal opinion is that dealing with regulations such as the Sabbath, if, if you want to meet on the Sabbath day and have your services on the Sabbath day and do all that kind of stuff and remember the Lord on, on Sunday and you want to do, have a preaching service on Sabbath, you want to do that, that's your liberty to do so. It's your liberty to do so. I'm not going to criticize someone who does that. It's your liberty to do so. There's no commandment that says you must meet on the first day of the week. But that was the pattern. Patterns are important. And God laid down the pattern for the early church. Now, I have five minutes, four and a half. Let me move ahead. Now, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to cut out stuff here so that we can move ahead. Let's, let's, go, let's move directly to, and, and I generally don't like to do this, but I'm just going to try and get here directly to this, to, this last, to this last portion where they're preparing to go out now on the second missionary journey. They're preparing to leave on the second missionary journey. And we have this dispute that rises, right? And we're all familiar with this dispute that rises up between and we've missed some stuff in between and I understand that but we get to this point now where Paul is ready to go back and visit the churches that's a wonderful thing to do that's a great principle that as missionaries that we've done often now you see churches established and you don't go away and just leave them forever you come back and you see them and you come see how they're doing how you how how is everything going along Sometimes recognizing men that are growing up and maturing in the faith, recognizing and encouraging them as you go along. They have questions for you. Well, what do we do with this? This happened. What do we do with that? And so it's a good thing to revisit the churches. And Paul and Barnabas wanted to go back and revisit the churches. And Barnabas said, let's take John Mark with us. And we know the story. We know the debate that rose up between them. And it became so sharp a contention that it split these brethren from each other. Sad, isn't it? It's kind of sad. It's always been kind of a sad story to me. But since we know that so well, I want to leave that beside, and I just want to look at another side of that equation, John Mark. What did that do to John Mark? Can you imagine? You're in that situation. You're John Mark now. You're John, called Mark. And you're in that situation, and you're, you're, you realize, you know, Paul is saying, we're not taking this guy with us because he deserted us before. And John, we don't know the reason. We're never told the reason why he left them in Pamphylia and, and, and went back. We're never told. 
It appears from the text, and according to Paul, it wasn't a very valid reason for him to leave. And he didn't want him along. And Barnabas, son of encouragement, wanted him along. I want to encourage this guy. Let's bring him along. Sure, he departed from us the last time, but I think he can be helpful to us, and I think he needs the encouragement. Let's bring him along. And here's John Mark stuck in the middle. How do you think John Mark felt? Do you think he knew what was going on? I think he knew what was going on. How would you feel? Yeah. Hurt. I just want to serve the Lord. You know, I mean, if, if Paul disagreed with me on that one, you know, or I'm really sorry, I didn't want that to happen. I certainly didn't want to have a contention like this happening. And now there's a split feeling between these two brethren who have served the Lord together. And, and how many times, brethren, have we seen the same stupid thing? We can't get along. You know? How many times have we seen brethren churches divide and very little very infrequently is it because of severe doctrinal issues. People can't get along. And so one is against the other and another is against that one and they begin forming their own little groups and off they go. How did John Mark feel? He must have felt awful. But he had a brother beside him. He had Barnabas. One of the leaders in the church who believed in him, who believed in him, had confidence in him, wanted to see him encouraged and put his arm around him and said, I'll take you. I'll take you, John. Let's go. And Paul gets Silas and they divide. And we know, we know the results. We know that there was benefit in it. And we know that down the road, Paul recognizes the value of John Mark. We realize that he said, bring him, bring him, he's helpful to the work. It's just a thought. We need to be careful. Because there's always someone stuck in between. We need to be careful that we are encouragers and not discouragers. That we are those who encourage the saints, not browbeat them. It's an important lesson for us to learn. Okay, I'll stop there. Father, we give you thanks for your kindnesses toward us, for even though while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die in our place and we didn't deserve any of it. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace toward us. Thank you, Father, for these stories that show how you were at work in the early church, that thy spirit was at work in the early church. And I know, Father, there are many things that we skipped over this morning as we've looked at this chapter. Many beautiful things. So, Lord, lead and guide us as we look at it again and look at it afresh. That you would teach us and train us that we might be servants, Father, who are encouragers. As the apostles were to the church in Antioch and as Barnabas was to John Mark that we would learn to be those who encourage. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to Thee in Jesus' name. Amen.